Hello Ocean Hackers, Mark here. Very excited to publish this, the first in our subject matter expert interviews for the podcast and hackathon. For those of you who don't know, all of this is centered around an annual Hack for the Sea event, which takes place in September in or around Cape Ann, Massachusetts. The concept for this episode is how an ocean hacker might balance the need for deploying sensors to collect marine data and the impact said sensors might have on the marine flora and fauna. Our experts are Pete Marchetto and Dimitri Ponirakis. Dimitri is a senior noise analyst and applications programmer for the bioacoustics research program at the Cornell Lab. He developed something called the Acoustic Ecology Toolbox to model the loss of communication space and masking of animal vocalizations from anthropogenic and abiotic sound sources. Peter is an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota's Department of Bioproducts and Biosystems Engineering. His research is focused on how to get data from the natural environment out of the field and into a form that can be used to make decisions. I met Pete first on Twitter. We had a great exchange about sensors and marine life. Pete was able to actually do a calculation for me to show how much impact a single sensor might have. Check that out under at HackForTheSea on Twitter. He then invited Dimitri to check his work, and then we all started talking about recording this episode. Terms to listen for in this episode, we'll put these in the glossary for future reference, are the Cornell Library of Natural Sound, the Deep Sound Channel, the acronym DCL or the acronym DCLDE, which stand for Detection, Classification, and Localization, or Detection, Classification, and Localization, Density Estimation, that's the DE part, something called the Confused Whale Kaggle Competition, which is a machine learning competition at kaggle.com, and something called Critical Sensing System Density, all important terms. Please go to github.com slash hackforthesea for more information on ocean hacking, and visit patreon.com slash hackforthesea to support the podcast. And of course, the hackathon website is hackforthesea.tech. Uh, the audio quality has some beeps and clicks in it, but bear with it. It's a great and illuminating, if not cavitating, conversation. We are here with Pete Marchetto and Dimitri Ponirakis, and I'm talking with them to discuss the balancing of gathering data from the ocean and deploying sensors and their equipment into the ocean with how you respect the marine life while you're doing that. So, uh, Pete, why don't you give a quick intro? Sure. Um, so, I'm Pete Marchetto. I used to work for the Bioacoustics Research Program at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, where whales are birds and frogs are birds. And now I'm actually an assistant professor at the Department of Bioproducts and Biosystems Engineering at the University of Minnesota, uh, mainly specializing in instrumentation for environmental sensing. Can you unpack the whales and birds and frogs? Uh... 
So Steven? the Lab of Ornithology is per force an ornithological organization. The joke at the Lab of O, as we call it affectionately, was always that since DRP, Bioacoustics Research Program, studied other species of what are known as charismatic megafauna, then elephants are birds and whales are birds, etc., etc., etc. Everything's a bird because we're studying the Lab of Ornithology. And Dimitri, why don't you give a quick intro? Okay, my name's uh, Dimitri Ponyrakis. I still work at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology in a Bioacoustics Research Program. Basically, I'm my sort of area of speciality is evolved into looking at the impact of anthropogenic noise on marine life and other species. That is basically the uh, noise on animals such as whales and dolphins and other marine animals that much people know about it, but it's, uh, <laughs> it is a pretty big problem in it. and it's also a problem in, um, in a sort of cumulative way with other forms of pollution, so there's that aspect as well. Okay, cool. Anthropogenic for the audience, uh, I think it's the same as abiotic, which means human-made. Is that right? Yeah, it's a human-made noise, yeah. Okay, cool. And uh, that's one category of pollution, which is noise pollution, but you're mentioning others as well. I would say that abiotic, um, you're mainly talking about environmental, but the specific part of anthropogenic, man-created pollution, I mean, that's our biggest problem today. It's just that in our particular case, within the purview of uh, the bioacoustics research program, it was always specifically anthropogenic noise, acoustic right. noise. Well, no- noise is basically unwanted sound. So, from the perspective of marine mammals, anything that's produced by humans is basically unwanted. Um, so, it's noise. And on top of that, you also have the fact that various signals that we send out that are important to us, which I think kind of leads into uh, where our conversation started, uh, can be noise to other animals. The old saying in signal processing is somebody's noise is somebody else's signal. Yeah, that that was um, the the article that that led us to talking was the deployment of these submarine drones to look for the MH370 flight. Um, And I feel like that's, that's basically kind of just a pop news thing because I feel like these submarine drones get deployed all the time um, or at least remote sensors like the the ones you've worked with and I don't think that that's the top noise polluter out there these sort of signals Um, the the biggest noise polluters in the ocean well there's two big ones and one's shipping traffic basically so any vessel that's out there that's running under using a motor of some kind is going to generate noise and the other one is um, seismic prospecting, which is the use of um, sounds to search for oil under the ocean, to, to, um, sending sound through the ocean to the seabed to try and figure out what's going on in geology under the sea. Oof. Um, so you can imagine that you have to put a heck of a lot of noise into yeah. the ocean to, <laughs> yeah. to get some reflections back. Um, so that obviously has side effects on marine life. Is that literally just a boat on the surface making tons and tons of noise to see what bounces back? Yeah, basically. Okay. So, I mean, I guess I guess really for, you know, the uh, a citizen marine scientist or even just a professional marine scientist, it's almost like for the sensors don't don't worry about it too much because you're really yep. not messing with too many things. It depends. 
Yeah, what's what? It depends on how, how many sensors there are. I mean, if there's only a few sensors and they're well distributed, I mean, on a local level, they're probably not going to have much of an impact. And it also depends on their source level, their sort of the frequencies they're operating at, um, because sound travels at different ranges depending on the frequency and source level. So, I mean, there's a lot of knowledge you have or aspects you have to look at to determine what that impact is. Um, yeah, and that's actually where that thread on Twitter that um, got you and me in, uh, in touch at first, Mark, that's where yeah. that was headed, was kind of unpacking. You had asked a very broad and general question about, um, let me see if I can remember it properly, it was something along the lines of how can you use, in your case you were talking about acoustic modems to send data back and how much of an effect is this going to have on marine life? I think that was pretty much the question. Yeah. Dimitri, I, I immediately thought of you when I saw this question, but I felt compelled to answer it. And yeah. My initial answer was, well, what's your specification? <laughs> because, I mean, um, one of the systems at uh, Cornell that they use, uh, is it's derived from this uh, device called the MARU, the Marine Autonomous Recording Unit, or, or affectionately known in VRP as the pop-up. And the reason for the name pop-up is because it's this little device that sits, well, not that little, it's a 19-inch instrumentation sphere of glass covered with yellow plastic hard hats, as we call them. <laughs> um, and it sits on the bottom of the ocean for, say, three, six, nine months or whatever amount of time. And then you send it a signal via an acoustic modem. And it's a very small signal. It's basically about, I think we're saying about 30 symbols inside of a couple of seconds. And it just hears that, says, oh, hi, I'm here. And then you say back to it, okay, well, release your, um, your anchor and float back up to the surface, hence the name pop-up. And then it says, you really want me to do that? <laughs> and then you say, yes, go ahead and release. And about eight to ten minutes later, usually on average, you then get this little yellow thing floating up at the surface that, you, that has a strobe light flashing, and you trawl it over to it and pick it out of the water. But the amount of noise that you're putting in to get that response on both sides, first of all, we're talking about two completely different bands. One's like four kilohertz, the other one's about 12 kilohertz mm -hmm. uh, between the tra transmitter and, well, between the command side and the receive side, or the client side, I, I shouldn't say send and receive because on both sides you're doing both. It, it, it is full duplex. But um, that amount of noise that you send in, even though your source levels are relatively high, your dispersion is going to be pretty large, and you're not sending in something that's necessarily going to interfere with anybody's, say, echolocation or communication. And the other thing is the total exposure time is very, very low. On the other hand, um, Dimitri, you probably know this off the top of your head. What sort of exposure time are we talking about for any species in the area when a seismic survey is going through? Um, well, for a start, the source levels are a lot higher. And yeah. so the, the range of impact is pretty great. And it's, I mean, they're firing, well, basically the seismic vessel has these um, 
called the air guns, basically, which use compressed air, and it's explosive release, this compressed air, and you know, sort of an array of, there's basically an array of air guns, and they they fire in a sort of controlled way. Um, that, that that that's a controlled explosion occurring every ten seconds, basically. Mm. So it's continuously firing every ten seconds for weeks and sometimes months at a time depending on where they are. And basically they mow the lawn, they go on transects and they they cover an area, a lease block basically, firing every 10 seconds until they've sort of covered the lease block. And so from a cumulative level, exposure level, it's it's orders of magnitude greater than sending a signal to a pop-up uh, that lasts for a few seconds. Exactly. But again, you know, if this becomes a sort of more of a popular mode of communication in the ocean, then it's, I mean, it depends on the, the numbers of those number of systems or units that are communicating at any one time. I mean, they're starting to build networks of communication on the ocean for whatever purpose. Then, yeah, that's something you'd have to look at. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it seems like something that humans are going to do. I mean, that's it's like we we don't stop ourselves from innovating ever with anything so it's like <laughs> you know um so you know if, if we do found an, an effective way especially if corporations can find a way to make it profitable we right. will just blanket the ocean with sensors see that's that's where my alarm is stuck <laughs> yeah 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 blanket the ocean. <laughs> you know it, it, it all comes down i i hate to i hate to be glib about it but it, it does all yeah. sort of come down to profitability and if they find a way to find oil with it or something like that um, and that's that's where my sort of apprehension and, and emphasis on just being responsible about it comes from. It, it seems like the two impacts would be the, all the seismic stuff that we're talking about. And that comparatively is, you know, again, relatively low. And then there's maybe the artifact of the sensor itself just being left on the ocean floor. You know, after it after it releases that hard hat or the, oh, the, the floor well, that comes that up. Case, so for, for the sensing systems we're talking about, the Maru's. Yeah. Usually that anchor is like a bag of gravel. And we've even used burlap bags to try and be as ecologically friendly as we can. I mean, in some cases, uh, like after when we were deploying after Deepwater Horizon, for example, we were going to some pretty extreme depths. And after our first round of deployments, we had units coming back where the bags had been eaten by whatever the heck <laughs> was uh, growing on the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. And... Also, somewhere in Ithaca, New York right now, there is a guy who I know who actually still has samples, uh, anaerobic culture samples, of whatever it was that was eating our burlap bags and even starting to eat the plastic on the ropes that were tied to them. Wow. Okay. I know. It, it was weird. We, don't, we still don't know what the heck it was. I lost a, pair, a really good pair of tweezers to taking that sample. But anyway... If it's um, plastic, you need to find out what that is. I know, that's right? A problem, right? Yeah. yeah. But, um, I mean, it's a good thing. In some ways, although wasn't that the entire uh, idea behind uh, the movie Andromeda Strain? Something started eating plastic and it just went out of control. <laughs> that's that's the thing. I, this is a trope, but we, you know, the saying that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do know about what's 5,000 feet under the water. Oh, amen to that. Is, is so true. And yeah, I mean, there's probably not aliens or the gray aliens that we talk about, but there's totally a possibility of there being a giant squid or something like that under there that, you know, I mean, so, we keep discovering species. Yeah. So you tell me that Every something down there eats plastic and I say, okay, sure. I believe that. 
And it's part, partly because there aren't really that many sensors. I mean, there are sensors, but they're usually so expensive to, yep. to deploy all these units that at least up until now, it's been prohibitively costly to blanket yeah. the ocean with sensors. But I guess it's heading in that direction. You know, it's interesting because for me, um, especially for acoustic modems, I, I kind of, I hope you don't mind the wayward digression here, but I kind of have a side story about that. Go for it. Um, there's actually a uh, paper that I never got published about a new encoding for acoustic modems that I, I was working on actually while I was working for the Lab of Ornithology. And the weird thing was how I came up with this thing. I'm not certain if you remember the show. It was on in the uh, 90s. It was called Sequest. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, you run hack for the C. You, you gotta... The, I'm guessing I'm among good company for people who'd remember that show. Was but, your paper uh, about communicating with a dolphin? That wasn't the part that got me, though. Okay. Honestly, as an engineer, or as a physicist playing an engineer, technically, what got me was the whiskers. The, um, the drones that they'd send out that would be in constant orbit around the vessel itself, and which would be sending back data in like what we consider to be VGA quality uh, video, but mm. live streaming it. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, they're not using lasers because, I mean, you could technically do a blue-green laser through water and get a relatively high data rate, but they're sending back information from behind out rock outcroppings and things like that. And I'm thinking to myself, mm. all right, so you're not using lasers for an optical backhaul, it's got to be acoustic, They're, or maybe magnetic if you're using, like, VLF. I'm thinking to myself, theoretically, how could I make something that could send back even standard definition video from one point undersea to another? And I start looking into what the current state of the art is for, for acoustic modems. And at that time, this was back in 2012, I think the, uh, the bit rate that you could get uh, maximum on some of the research stuff that was out there was about 48 to 55 uh, kbps. So relatively slow. About the same order of magnitude as a 56k modem then. I mean, theoretically, you could get some video at like maybe, what is it, uh, whatever that smaller resolution, like I think it's 280 by something. 320 by 240 or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. That, yeah. So theoretically, you could get that back over um, that. I mean, you remember back when we had quick cams and 33 kbps modems, people sure. were actually able to do video chats, but it wasn't anything where you could also backhaul audio at the same time. It wasn't something where you could encode a whole bunch of other stuff. And that's when um, I started looking into this idea of, okay, well, is there any way that we could try doing multiple symbols or multiple tones at the same time. And so we actually did have a technology that never really went anywhere that would have done that. The problem was, uh, then I started thinking about it a little bit further, and I ran into the exact same ethical question that you're posing, which is, all right, well, now we have this possibility of sending data relatively fast underwater. Now what do we do with that? Mm -hmm. And as you said, blanketing the ocean with these things seems like a bad idea in general terms. Uh, there are definitely a few people out there, though, who I'm, I'm actually working with a couple of them right now, who are looking at the idea of critical sensor or sensing system density. So you can actually have um, some number that says, okay, well, if I 
put things closer than this, I start losing money on the proposition. And I start losing resources unnecessarily. Okay. So that's another take on it. No. It's this idea of can we can we get high enough bandwidth, high enough distance, and still be able to keep things far enough apart that you get a return on investment commercially while also still being responsible about both your usage of resources and also your usage of acoustic bandwidth, which is another resource that we're only just starting to think about, yeah. I think. A question for Dimitri, going off of what uh, what Pete's talking about, is there any sort of matrix or reference point for the fauna local to a zone in the ocean versus what frequencies are sort of safe to use, or any any yeah. data um, like that? Generally, the the larger the animal, the lower the frequency that they communicate over, and the smaller the the higher. Um, at least the marine mammals, so that you know the large baleen whales, they communicate with sort of fifty to two hundred, five hundred hertz range, so below a thousand hertz, which from their point of view is like where the shipping noise is, so shipping mm-hmm. noises and to some degree the seismic. So that's a problem for those guys. But then the sort of toothed whales, the odontocetes, they communicate at much higher frequencies, and especially if they're echolocating. And so they are communicating up in those kilohertz range ranges. Okay. Where the, I guess these acoustic modems are going to be operating. So if there's a sort of a marine mammal point of view, that they're the species that are more likely to be impacted. As other species like fish, they kind of use more kind of impulsive noises, like they use their swim bladders, so it's kind of like a drumming sounds and things. And of course, their source levels or ranges that they're interested in, are, I guess, are much smaller on an individual level than something that like a marine mammal which is communicating over okay. in some cases they communicate over thousands of miles. So. The lower the frequency, the more omnidirectional the sound is, and the higher the frequency, the more directional That's the right. sound is. Yeah, yeah I mean the yeah, the larger the wavelength, yeah, it's more omnidirectional. The wave okay. And um, then is there is there any interest in supersonic frequencies to use? Because you know, theoretically, a machine can listen higher than the twenty kilohertz kind of human. Oh, that's, that's a human. Ultra, that's sorry, a ultrasonic range. So I mean, humans can hear from twenty hertz to twenty kilohertz, but yeah. other species. I mean, if you think of bats, they can hear hundred kilohertz, whatever. I mean, that's true. Okay. So for dolphins, right? Yeah, dolphins they're communicating over way high frequencies that we can hear, and they're listening as well. Over Interesting. Okay. Frequencies. So. Yeah, so it's in their range, basically. That's my that's my human bias talking, I guess. I didn't realize that. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is definitely a point there, though, insofar as if you get into, like, the multi-megahertz range, theoretically you could use that, but the sound levels that you need in order to get the propagation over the distances you're talking about, you're going to start talking about ultrasonic cavitation of the water next to your transducer and all sorts of other phenomena that are going to make it really energy intensive and probably not very healthy for anybody to go what, up into those really what's that acoustic cavitation in that must also be a noise issue in itself what's that what, exactly I, I mean not to mention the fact that you're also illuminating the dark then <laughs> what is cavitation for the audience in me uh, for the audience cavitation is when you essentially create a pressure wave that causes water to spread away from itself fast enough and far enough that you essentially create a small vacuum. Whoa. So there's a bubble of rarefied water that essentially collapses in on itself and becomes steam for a moment. And so, the, well, actually, technically, there are two forms of cavitation. 
That one is from high-intensity acoustic sources, especially in the ultrasonic range. The other form of cavitation that you can have is air entrainment cavitation, and this is the sort of thing that eats propellers on or screws on the backs of boats, where you're pushing air into the water, and then that air expands back up very quickly. And that's but in both cases, you're creating a cavity in the water that collapses in some way. Wow. And the reason why I was saying that it lights up the ocean as well, although albeit at a very, very small level, cavitation, especially vacuum cavitation from shock waves, can actually cause light to occur from that collapse into the vacuum that occurs afterwards. So you can actually get these tiny, tiny little uh, sparks of kind of blue-white light if you have a loud enough sound underwater uh, that's impulsive enough to create the cavitation bubble that then collapses. Wow. It's weird stuff, man. And it seems like the ocean really doesn't want us listening to it. I mean, it's, it's going to... It, it doesn't it, mind us it, listening to or, it. It's a matter sorry. of us shouting into it. Shouting into it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, what about listening? What about just putting an array of hydrophones and then collecting the data or something like that? We do that. Okay. The building those was actually my job at BRP. Um, hydrophones things to record from hydrophones, but actually, Dimitri, you've done actual deployments of those arrays, right? Oh, so. yeah, up in the Arctic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. quite challenging. <laughs> yeah, I, I was actually looking forward to transitioning to this because I saw this in your bio, and I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to hear about the, your time in the Arctic, so please just expound on that. It was for a seismic, um, the monitoring the impact of seismic noise up in the Canadian did it for a couple of years. So basically you have to, well, the most interesting one was use it was on a Canadian Coast Guard vessel, which was an icebreaker, mm -hmm. uh, which was an incredible experience being in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. Yeah. Thing. But you can imagine the cost of deploying something like that. But we were basically employed by Imperial Oil, which was a subsidiary of like Exxon. Mm -hmm. So of course they have deep pockets, which is part of the issue, <laughs> I guess. But, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, we had to go out into, into ice, and we were breaking through ice to, to get this, deploy those units, and out there for weeks. And so you can imagine the cost of having a large icebreaker going around, dropping an array, because basically you want to have an array that was to, to get sort of, sort of directionality, because you want to, one of these things you can do is, if the whales are vocalizing, you can actually localize where the whales are by the time of arrival, on each of those units, so there's lots of things you can do with what they call passive acoustic, which is sort of just listening yeah. acoustics as opposed to active, where you're sending a signal out as well as listening. Um, so you can tell where the whales are, you can measure the ambient noise levels, but just uh, based on, when you say abiotic, that includes sort of what they call geophony, which is, you know, noise from the ice, wind, wave, mm. all these sort of naturally occurring soundscapes. And you can measure the actual sound from the seismic vessel or, or other vessels that are there. And also because you have location information of the vessel, you can start modeling the sound as well. So you can start to... Yeah. Once you, once you drop a hydrophone in, into the water, how far away does your icebreaker need to get before that data becomes useful? Um, well, yeah, it's recording. I mean, it has a timer and then it's recording for months, basically. Okay. So. You know, the time that the icebreaker is there is a relatively short period compared to the time that it's recording. So. Gotcha. 
we're not talking about like a cabled array here. These are those right. Mars, those yellow instrumentation spheres that are, that we're talking about in some cases, right? Right. Yeah. This was yeah, the recorder. Right. So it's just that glass spheres. Basically, it just drops to the bottom of the ocean wherever it is. You know, some any of them. Some of them go down to. In that case, it was some of them were off, off the shelf, and some of them are on the shelf. So the deep ones are over a thousand meters, I think. Wow. Um, and some of the shallow ones were 40 meters, and so, yeah, and, of course, up, up there we're recording um, bowhead whale migrations, so perhaps we're able to record the bowhead whales and other species like um, bearded seals, and should replace them with it, sand recordings. That's but I guess we have a website, you can probably post. Is there a website for this? Or I don't is... think we have anything up right now, but if you, if you actually went to the Macaulay Library of Natural Sound, which is part the Cornell Anthropology, you can actually search for those sounds, I, I believe. And okay, I mean, so and, and we can send you a link, definitely. That would be yeah, fantastic. Yeah, we, we compile all these resources onto a GitHub repository of just da open data sets for the hackers right. to use during. Um, yeah, I mean, and if you, well, you could probably post some sounds as well. I mean, if there's a GitHub site, you could probably. That would be really it. cool. And what was the what were the most compelling conclusions that you came to from analyzing um, the the Arctic data? One is that you're just able to see what's going on. I mean, the sensing of marine life, you can see the migrations passing through, and you can determine to some extent their behavior. And then just the impact of the sound, just how loud it is and all pervasive and how far it reaches um, is yeah. It's kind of it's disturbing. I mean, I know there's a lot of problems in the ocean. I guess that's something I want to address is there are problems if people are focusing their energy that I think I'd ask a lot of people to focus their energy on conservation and trying to maintain the ocean environment. It's, it's not just a body of water. It has life in it that needs protecting. One of the, um, the body of water. Yeah. Yeah. Two thirds of the world is ocean. Right. Right. At, at the be, you know, we, we have a panel discussion at the beginning of, the, of our hackathons and we have experts come in and I always ask the first question I ask is what is the ocean? And just seeing people sort of, you know, I, I try to surprise them a little bit and try to answer that question. And it's, it's such a hard question to really pin down because it, it's so many things. And I would say it's the body of water. It's, though. it's, it's just really, it fits the most important one. So from what I'm hearing you say, Dimitri, you can observe anthropogenic seismic activity and then you might be able to say, okay, we heard this sound at this particular timestamp and then look at maybe some shipping lane data and say, oh, that must have been maybe this ship here. And right. then I mean, the other thing is uh, large ships, at least, they have this something called an automatic identification system. So they have to send a signal telling where they are so the other ships around don't run into them, basically. Right. But there's, there's, there's commercial companies that have satellites that pick up that data, and so that data is available. So, but you, but to anybody that wants to look for it, and, and you're saying that the uh, the distance that that sound can travel was was the shocking part to you. That when you finally identified the ship that was making that noise, go on. You can detect seismic from, I want to say, across an ocean basin, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's that loud. Okay. There's something called a deep sound channel, which aids So there's a basically the way the the sound is focused, I guess, into this channel in the ocean, allows it to propagate, yeah, for thousands of miles, potentially. I mean, and, I mean, it's evidence that whales use that, this thing called the deep sound channel as well to communicate over large ranges, so 
if, if that sound's getting in there, then that kind of messes up the... Yeah. You know, has an impact on their ability to communicate over those long distances. Actually, That's you're fun. reminding me, um, our mutual former boss, Chris Clark, yes. once told me this story about um, an acoustic experiment with Deep Sound Chow. I'm trying to remember who it was, but I think it was the Australian Navy detonated something that was about equivalent to about 10 sticks of dynamite in the deep sound channel sometime back in like the 50s. And there was a listening post for the British Navy um, in the UK that a while later heard the sound of that detonation at very, very high amplitude Well, that, that was, uh, from yeah. listening in that channel. Was that? Yeah, and I think there was a research project um, I'm trying to remember who it was, but basically they were using the propagation of sound using a very loud source level, and they had listening stations around the globe, basically, mm -hmm. and based on the time of arrival, they were like trying to figure out what the temperature was in the ocean, so looking at trying mm -hmm. to look at the impacts of global warming, basically, using the sort of um, sound speed through the ocean, as with a lot of these things, you, you're trying to look at the impact of one environment problem and you create, create another one, basically. Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's deafen the whales while we try and figure out the ocean temperature. <laughs> oh. Right. So I guess, I guess um, water molecules, it's, what's that little machine that's the balls that go, and they, you Newton's know. Newton's cradle, yeah. What is it, Newton's cradle? Yeah, yeah. The, the water molecules are just like a global Newton's cradle that carry with a lot, with very yeah, little I mean, loss. If you try and listen to sound in water, your perception of where the source is relative to you. Uh, if you ever even just put your head in the water, even in a pool, and close your eyes and have somebody else make a sound at the other side of the pool, it's going to sound like it's right next to you for two reasons. Number one, the amplitude is greater because there's much less acoustic impedance and much less dispersion mm -hmm. uh, within that medium. And number two, the speed of sound is considerably higher. I mean, in air, it's about 330 meters per second. In water, it's around about, depending on the conditions and whether it's fresh water, salt water, it's in the like 1,200 to 1,500 meter per second range. So, so uh, for both of those, I mean, even the way that we measure sound is fundamentally incompatible between air and water. Um, in air, we reference everything to the lowest possible sound level that humans can hear, which is 20 micropascals. And so whenever you see decibels in air, it's actually decibels relative to 20 micropascals or some other filter applied to that. In water, it's similarly arbitrary, but it's not related to humans anymore. It's decibels relative to one micropascal. You still have to do a conversion to add. I think it's, correct me if I'm wrong here, Dimitri, it's been a couple of years, but I think it's UDB uh, to do this rough conversion. Because decibels are a logarithmic unit, let's divide by 10. That means that we're still orders of magnitude off between air and water. Hearing is a whole different yeah. ball game when you stick your head in the water. It's a, I, I, I'm envisioning some sort of deep learning application which can take sound and produce geospatial information. Is that something that people are working on or... Like if you had an array of sensors even across a basin and then you just got time-stamped sound signatures, could you theoretically put together some sort of map of what's going on in there? Theoretically, you could, although what I'd say that a lot more of more advanced machine learning and other technologies are probably starting to be used for now is actually recognition of 
individual signals from either anthropogenic noise sources so that you can actually recognize what's making the noise, or possibly more importantly, the signals from the animals that are actually talking to each other underwater, or even just biologically generating the signal by accident. Like, for example, a, a mantis shrimp or something of that nature isn't necessarily trying to make sound when it uh, knocks out its prey, but it's going to make, actually, due, due to cavitation, it's going to make a large impulsive noise. Mm. So if you want to know where the mantis shrimp are, you listen for the popping. But then it's a matter of which popping is the right popping. And that's where I think that, especially on the software side, uh, things really need to come together. Between that and localization, DCL is the, uh, the acronym, or the initialism that was always used in bioacoustics in the bioacoustics research program detection classification and localization those are the three big problems as i see them at least that software can most help with and that's dclde uses oh density estimation as well okay things have changed since i was there then dimitri just say that one more time what was that was it detection classification localization and then there's density estimation so you can if you have a local an array like i was talking about before you can actually and you're able to localize you can have you can, there's a sort of algorithms you can use to figure out the density of a marine po mammal population in a given area um, but it's it's a challenging problem it's not straightforward yeah yeah i remember uh whales per cubic meter <laughs> okay yeah yeah i remember brian laguerre from the center for coastal studies told me that he can listen to audio and zero in on a kind of two specific frequencies and he can sort of tell if there's a school of fish, what kind of fish it is, how many there are, you know, probably spe specific to a, maybe a handful of species or something like that. But, you know, that was, that was pretty cool. But I like that. Uh, I like that measurement whales per cubic meter. Yep. It's essentially what the density estimate gets you. There is actually another side of this, though, because uh, one of the projects that I'm currently working on at the University of Minnesota is looking at uh, a freshwater application of DCL, where, without the DE part, um, because we're looking at silver carp, which are invasive uh, in freshwater uh, watersheds up here, and we're trying to hear with the noise that they make, the mechanical noise that they make when they jump out of the water and land back in it. So it's, it's another fish-related thing because they don't actually vocalize. Uh, but they're an invasive species that's really wreaking havoc on, like, the Missouri and Miss Mississippi basins. So the question is really one of, all right, can you hear the difference between the silver carp jumping out of the water and landing back in it and anything else? Or what? And that's the exact same signal processing algorithms that we're talking about for bioacoustics in the ocean. I was saying that you, um, you need good training sets, which is a big challenge yes. of machine learning. And especially especially with acoustic-like vocalizations, it, I mean, that's hard to get at, especially partly because of the lack of sensors out there, and partly somebody has to go through that sound data and oh, yeah. annotate. Brown this is a ground truth, yeah. Yeah, which is a challenge that maybe the hacker community might be able to play a part in if they're able to use. I mean, what they call citizen science and uh, crowdsourcing. You, 
there was some way of getting these sound data out where people could go and you know ground truth this thing that would produce a much better yeah. um, truth set. And actually, didn't we, we just, have a um, didn't we have a successful uh, competition uh, when uh, a couple of years ago in BRP uh, for yeah. a classification algorithm or a detection? Yeah, there was a there was, I think it was a kind of competition. I believe it was for the right whale up calls. Yeah, that's right, but. Um, yes, the North Atlantic right okay. whale, or the confused whale, because it goes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, I'll look. At, yeah, I'll look that up. So. I'll link to that in the show notes. I recently this is this is lore, but I just recently learned about that. What's the fifty-eight hertz whale or something like that? That mystery whale. Uh, right. yes. Yeah, mm. yeah. <laughs> the loneliest whale, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's supposedly a hybrid between a fin whale and a blue blue whale. Oh, I weird. think. We just average the two frequencies and just say, oh, it must be. Um, all right, open question to both of you, because um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that you've you've both worked in the public and the private sectors as scientists. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. Can you just speak to sort of what some of the differences are there between those two sectors and what working in one is like versus the other? I, mean, I, I used to work at consultancies. Um, to basically look at the impact of environmental noise on people. <laughs> um, but the, the, the onus of consultancy is that, I mean, it's basically who, who pays the piper calls the tune, basically. That's the bottom line. So, the, I mean, uh, um, so the things you, emphasis you choose to put on things, the way you look at them is kind of focused on some level by who your client is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm saying that a bad way, and that's why you need good regulations um, so that... Um, Everybody's playing the same by the same playbook. Um, I'd say that's the main thing, main difference. You're working for consultancy; it's more about kind of engineering kind of problems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I problems versus, yeah. I don't, I don't want to veer into politics really at all. Um, <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just, yeah, yeah. Just curious because it, it, I'm just looking at like, you know, in the past few years we've had uh, something like space exploration. And a company like SpaceX seems like they have just accomplished so much in the last 10 years or something like that, really riding on the shoulders of a lot of the work that's been done over the last 50 years. But um, I, I feel like there's just pros and cons, and I just like to hear what people have to say about, you know, especially people like you two who have had experience in both. For me, I, sorry. Good, Pete. I would say that um, for me, it's been interesting in both cases because uh, when I worked in industry, I was working on uh, mainly calibration work. And so actually a lot of that carried through into my work in academia after that, uh, which I mean, since I've, let's see, I worked at Penn State, I worked at Cornell, and now I work at the University of Minnesota, all three of which are land-grant universities and therefore technically state agencies. At all three, I actually wound up being the person who would bring in the idea that, oh, you know, we should probably make certain that our measurements are traceable to something else, that our measurements line up with the National Institutes of Standards and Technology standards. The industry job was what introduced me to that, and then the academic jobs were where I applied that. But insofar as the major difference between 
industry and academia slash public sector, I would say that it's mainly that, yes, things may move faster in the private sector, but I would say that's probably because of the fact that, at least in my experience, they're done with a little bit less consideration. Oftentimes, it's a matter of charging off on some random errand with very little prior thought yeah. compared to the more deliberate pace to a public agency. That being said, there's definitely the other way around still uh, plays true because you're taking more risks faster and failing faster in the private sector a lot of the time. I think that that kind of builds its own safety net. You know more quickly what will work, work and what won't. Whereas in the public sector, because everything's slow and deliberate, if you screw anything up, then you set yourself way back for a very long time. So both have their advantages. Final final questions here. Wrapping up, we got about ten minutes left. Pete, if you had thirty to sixty uh, eager hackers for a weekend, what would you ask them to do? And now, Dimitri, the first thing about yeah, that is that nowadays I'm doing more than just bioacoustics, <laughs> so okay. I might test them on different things. If I were to look at this though from an oceanographic or marine bioacoustic perspective, if they're software hackers, I'd try and get them on DCLDE uh, problems and try try to figure out, especially localization in three dimensions from sparse arrays of hydrophones. And when I say sparse, I mean something that's just n plus one, where you you're trying to measure in three dimensions, you need four hydrophones minimum. N plus one is the general rule for multilateration, where you're trying to get multiple different time delays of arrival and back those into a single location. And that three right. being three dimensions, three dimensions plus one. Right. So okay. three, well, three. Yeah, it's basically you have to know the number of degrees of freedom or the number of dimensions you're localizing within, and then you add one to it to constrain it. The idea is very similar to the math behind GPS, where you, you have to have n plus one number, in that case, of transmitters for the one receiver to localize in three dimensions. Okay. But anyway, um, that would be the software thing that I would uh, sick them on. On the hardware front, we're still trying to figure out how to do communications underwater, or more to the point, how to get back uh, data that we store underwater. And I think that having somebody hack together some relatively good surface-capable uh, hydrophone arrays, where they have at least four hydrophones in them, and you have like a floating raft that can somehow backhaul via SATCOM or cell modem or something like that while it's alongshore, that would be really useful. Cool. So those would be the two things, software and hardware respectively, that I'd stick them on. How about you, no Dimitri? Problem. Probably quite similar. Um, for software, I think um, better detection algorithms, for, again, for detection and classification of marine mammal vocalizations and other species, because it, it is challenging so, uh, to have them, maybe like I was saying, to come up with some kind of crowdsourcing way of presenting sound data in a way that so you can create tree sets using... Um, yeah, that sort of human validation on the hardware thing side. Like I said before, I mean, traditionally acoustic recording uses passive acoustic recording uses are incredibly expensive. I mean, relatively, and, and the deployment's expensive. So I would say to come up with a cheap, um, dip, uh, effective 
um, maybe open source hydrophone recording system that can deploy maybe in different ways, either you know using something like a little mini cat catamaran type thing, mm -hmm. something that's floating on the surface and deploys the hydrophone, or, or something along that level um, that can be deployed, or some or maybe cr again crowdsourcing, coming up with some software to that you can um, use on an iPad or something. You can plug a hydrophone in and, and maybe. You know, people are in the sailing community, or you know, people who go out on boats, mm -hmm. pleasure, pleasure boats, and whatever. They'll be able to deploy this software and send the data back to some kind of, I don't know, some, some kind of media outlet where it could be um, again crowdsourced, and yeah. uh, the whole thing might be nicely integrated together. If you come up with some sort of crowdsourced citizen science way of um, that's pretty cool. Sort of collecting this data, but on a much lar larger level than you can now with sort of more traditional methods. What? Great. We need to build a raft. Yeah, right. We're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> the, yeah, I guess the pleasure boats are quieter than the, you know, if you're not running the motors or Definitely something. Still, yeah, I mean, they turn the motor off and just drift for a while. Just hang the hydrophone on the side and listen to what's down there. <laughs> well, um, all right. Well, we can wrap up, guys. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. And uh, I'll let you know when the episode's up. Excellent. Thanks. Yeah. And uh, have a great day. Talk to you soon. You too. Bye. Take care. Thanks Take care. again. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Bye.